Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing the last content in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. We're coming to the end of this version of our group learning program where we've gone from the very beginning of this book over a six-month period of time and now we're arriving to the very end of the book. It's so far in the end, in fact, it doesn't even have a chapter number. It's just called Frequently Asked Questions. There's 11 questions in the back of the book and some additional content that I share in terms of helping you on this path to enlightenment. These are 11 of the most frequently asked questions that I get and that I wasn't necessarily interested in putting anywhere else in the book. So I made this section at the end where you could actually learn these most frequently asked questions because you may actually have some of these questions as well. And then the very last part of the book that I share is how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. And it's all the way at the back of the book for a reason, because you would have needed to go all the way through the book, learning and practicing the teachings over many, many months and years in order to get to the point where you actually are perhaps looking at enlightenment. And there's people that can do that in a few years or a couple of years, or there's people that take multiple, multiple lives. And all of us have experienced multiple lives and perhaps have been practicing these teachings in the past, but there could be multiple years. It could be three years or five years or 10 years. Even the student who was closest to the Buddha during his lifetime, Ananda, the very closest student that studied right alongside the perfectly enlightened Buddha, he actually didn't attain enlightenment until after the Buddha died. And I feel the reason why is he was probably attached to the Buddha because he's everywhere in the Pali Canon. He's always with the Buddha, right? So he probably had this craving, desire, attachment to the Buddha. And it wasn't until the Buddha died that he had to come face to face with that. And eventually he attained enlightenment. So you are going to be interested at some point. Have you attained enlightenment yet or not? And you may have that question now. So we're going to go through that as part of our discussion today. When I did this talk six months ago, I didn't cover how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. I only covered the first 11 questions in the frequently asked questions section. So I thought what I would do is kind of spend a bit of time on the 11 questions, but not necessarily going into them as much depth as I did six months ago and spend more time talking about how to determine if you've actually attained enlightenment, because that's something that we didn't cover six months ago. So as we go today, 
and we cover these 11 questions. There's a few that I'll probably just cover at a surface level, but if any of you have questions, I'm more than willing to go deeper and dive deeper, exploring and providing answers to these questions. So if I don't touch on the question quite deep enough, or if you have follow-up questions to any of these questions that I answer, just put your question into the comment section of either Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And then our moderator, Max, will see that and make sure your question gets asked during the class so that we can go deeper into any particular questions or topics that you would like to discuss. And then for those of you in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and Max can call on you as well if you'd like to ask any question or follow-up question directly. So thank you for joining. I appreciate that you're here. And let's go ahead and get started with the first question of the Frequently Asked Questions section. The very first question which comes up frequently is, can I exercise the physical body and still attain enlightenment? And the answer, simple answer to this is yes. But there are some other things that you should understand. When we're talking about enlightenment and training the mind to attain enlightenment, we are training the mind. We're not training the body. We're not training the physical body. That's not part of what we're doing in order to attain or experience this mental state of enlightenment. But maintaining the health and fitness of the physical body is important because it's the physical body that resides together with the mind. And if the physical body is not healthy, that means the life is going to be shorter and it's going to give you less time to actually train the mind and actually attain enlightenment. So while you can exercise and that's helpful and it maintains the health of the physical body to ensure you have longevity to attain enlightenment and then once you attain it, enjoy it for the rest of your life, but you wouldn't have to exercise if you didn't want to. But it is certainly a wise thing to do as part of deciding to be a conscious individual where you're awakening with wisdom. Part of the wisdom is, yeah, take care of the physical body. The other thing to think about here in terms of whether you can exercise to attain enlightenment or not, the exercise itself isn't going to help you attain enlightenment necessarily, but it's helping to maintain the physical body. But what can actually happen is because craving, desire, attachment comes in many forms, there's this mental longing and a strong eagerness where you can be attached or craving or desiring many different things, many different situations, many different relationships. You can work the mind into a situation where there's craving, desire, attachment towards physical exercise. And if you have that, then it's going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. But it's not the exercise itself that is inhibiting enlightenment. It's the craving, desire, attachment to the exercise. So for example, if somebody exercised at 8 a.m. every morning and they just pushed and pushed and pushed and they just bolted out the door and they just had to get to the gym in order to exercise, and this was a craving, desire, attachment, a yearning that the mind has, this strong eagerness, and that is going to inhibit you from getting enlightenment because if you get a flat tire along the way, if you 
aren't able to exercise a certain day, the mind's going to be discontent because it's craving and desiring this exercise so much. Additionally, if there is ego or arrogance in terms of your physical fitness plan, if you're in the gym pumping up iron and you just want to get bulky and show off and have arrogance and ego in order to look a certain way for people and that's going to attract attention to you, this aspect of physical fitness and exercise is going to inhibit you. But it's not the exercise itself. It's the actual way that the mind relates to this exercise. So if you're looking down on others who don't exercise, if you think you're so wonderful because you do exercise and those who don't exercise are no good, you know, you're judging others, these are all the aspects of the mind that are going to inhibit you, but not the actual exercise itself. So if you choose to exercise, it's just like everything else with the Buddhist teachings. You've got to find the middle, right? If you exercise excessively, in too much, the physical body is going to actually break down. The joints and the muscles can't sustain that. But if you exercise too little and there isn't physical health in the physical body, your lifespan is going to be shorter. It's going to put more difficulties on the organs. You're going to run into more medical conditions, more medical problems. Therefore, you're not going to be able to sustain the health of the physical body to train the mind. So you've got to find that middle. And that middle for you is different for everybody. At one time in my life, I did exercise. I exercised a lot, but now not so much. I just kind of go out for walks and I go out and ride bikes with my son. I'm not actually in the gym pumping iron, but I ensure that I'm active and I'm getting some type of physical exercise, but not just pumping iron and pumping iron to grow muscles, but more so just to kind of maintain the health of the organs in the body and ensure there's some amount of activity in the physical body. So it's not the physical exercise itself that is the problem because we can find the middle with that. It's all about how the mind relates to this exercise. Okay, so that's an important thing to think about and understand. The reason why this question tends to come up is because monks don't exercise the ordained practitioners don't exercise but they have specific reasons why they don't right they don't exercise because they typically only eat one or maybe two meals a day their calorie intake is very low and that's because they don't want to burden the household practitioners to offer them three meals a day and you know, extensive amounts of high quality food in order for them to exercise. So out of loving kindness and compassion for household practitioners, they choose to do stretching, to do walking, to just do kind of some light mobility type things rather than deep, heavy physical exercise. So oftentimes people moving into Buddhist teachings, they look at the monks and they think that everything that the monks should do or everything that the monks don't do is what you need to do. But you need to understand that they're two different lifestyles. The monks are eating one or two meals a day. They're 100% dependent on other people to provide them that subsidence. And out of loving kindness and compassion that we don't offer so much, so much, so much food, which would cause a lot of work for us, 
they're choosing not to do heavy physical exercise, but just kind of light walks. And you'll oftentimes see monks walking here in Thailand. They'll be walking through the jungles or walking on the mountains or walking on the streets. So don't think that just because of what the monks do or what the monks don't do, that that's what you've got to do. You've got to understand the different lifestyle and understand this middle way that the Buddha taught. The second question that I get is about medication and medicine. People ask, is this an attachment? Well, we often have these kind of questions come up. You know, is having a cell phone an attachment? Is having a computer an attachment? Is having a daughter or a son or a life partner an attachment? All of these things can be attachments or they might not be. It's all depending on how the mind relates to it. It's not about just a particular thing being an attachment or not. Somebody can actually be attached to water, right? If the mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness where you think that you've got to ingest, you know, five liters of water a day. And if you don't get that, the mind becomes angered and frustrated and discontent. Well, the mind's having craving, desire, attachment to water, right? So everything and anything in our life can be an attachment if we allow the mind to wrap around it and have this mental longing and strong eagerness. So medicine by itself, you can't say whether it is an attachment or it isn't an attachment. But what's important with medication is that you ensure that you understand why you're taking the medication. For example, if you have a headache and you're going to take medication for your headache, Sure, go ahead and take the medicine. We live in modern times. The Buddha didn't really have the modern medicine that we have now. They had other types of medicine. But if you have a headache and it's going to help you sleep or it's going to help you work or it's going to help you get along in your day, sure, go ahead and take it. But if you use the excuse of not having medication to allow you to become grumpy and angry to the people around you just because you have a headache, now you have attachment. Now you have craving, desire, attachment because you're longing for that medicine and you're sitting there wishing and hoping and craving to have it and you don't have it. Therefore, your mind becomes angry and discontent. So in that situation, that particular situation, it's an attachment. But if you just take the medicine and you notice, okay, it's helping me. Now let me make some decisions and reflect on why do I have the headache? Am I lacking sleep? Am I lacking proper food intake? Am I lacking water? What is it that caused this headache so that I can get to the root cause? Because if there's one thing that a Buddhist practitioner should get really good at is getting to the root cause of problems. Because the problem that all human beings have is a discontent mind. And what the Buddhist teachings do is they strip down what is the root cause. Well, we know the three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, ignorance, and we know the 10 fetters. We get to the root cause and we root those out and we practice the wholesome roots so that we can get to the source of the problem so that this problem of a discontent mind no longer happens. Well, you should take that same methodology in all parts of your life. So when you get a headache, don't just blindly take the medicine and just kind of forget about it. You've got to be inquisitive and look and reflect why is this headache occurring so that you can solve that problem. 
here in Thailand in the summer times, we have to take in a lot more water and we tend to eat a lot more fruit because that really helps us with the deep heat. And during the winter time, when it's a little bit cooler like this, you know, I can kind of slack off occasionally of a little bit of water or maybe not enough rice or fruit. And I can find myself getting a little bit of a headache every once in a while. And when I do, I look and I notice right away, ah, I'm not eating rice or I'm not eating fruit. I'm not drinking enough water. So yes, I still will take the medicine occasionally, but I also address the root cause which is the fruit or the rice or the water. And that takes care of the problem. So if you're having constant headaches, for example, there's a problem there and there's craving desire attachment in there that's creating these headaches because the closer and closer you get to enlightenment, you won't experience headaches. And if you do, it's going to be very minimal things like food intake or lack of sleep and you can remedy and fix it right away. Now, there are some medications we take for pain relief, right? Like say you get on a car accident and you need medication to relieve the pain to help you get over the healing of the body. Sure, go ahead and take it. But just be sure you don't get addicted to that medication and that after this ailment is over that you're continuing to take it just for heedlessness because that's going to cause problems in your life. And then additionally, there's a lot of medications in the world now for things like depression or what we call bipolar, for anxiety, for stress. These are all problems that can be remedied through the Buddhist teachings. If somebody is taking this medication, lacking the wisdom and understanding that they can actually remedy their problems of sadness and stress and anxiety, through learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind, then yeah, this medication is actually hurting their practice and inhibiting them because it's taking them in a direction away from right view. And they think that the problem is chemically based when in reality, the true problem is that the mind is experiencing craving, desire, attachment, which leads to discontentedness. So rather than rely on some of these pharmaceuticals that are changing brain chemistry, what this person should do is instead of having a craving, desire, attachment for that is to get under training to learn right view and learn the rest of the eightfold path so that you can eliminate the sadness, eliminate the anxiety, eliminate the stress that comes with craving, desire, attachment. So medication and medical procedures aren't necessarily an attachment. Now, when you look at other medical procedures, Look at things like cosmetic surgery, okay? If somebody's doing cosmetic surgery just for the sake of looking younger, right? Then yes, this is craving desire attachment because the mind isn't comfortable with impermanence. It's not comfortable with aging. And therefore, somebody's trying to use medical procedures in order to circumvent this impermanence and the mind has this longing and strong eagerness for this medical procedure in order to change something about the physical body because the mind is identifying this physical body as the self and now there's people who will go to the ends of the earth one procedure after another after another and if you look at some of these situations of people that have ended up doing this you will see they're still being affected by impermanence in these medical procedures, oftentimes they look good for five years or so, 
or 10 years, but then eventually it really turns out kind of bad for people. You know, we saw this with breast implants when the silicone started leaking. We see this with Botox and surgery on the lips and facelifts and things like this, that people can almost start looking freakish to a certain degree if they keep going back doing this over and over. And this is the gamma. This is the results of having that craving desire attachment for youth. And instead of just being comfortable with sickness, aging and death, the mind is just constantly craving that youthfulness. So it's not black and white of whether medicine or medical procedures are an attachment or aren't an attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to it. And that's one of the reasons why it's good to have a teacher in your life to guide you on this path so that as you're considering certain things, a teacher can kind of ask you some questions to help you uncover whether what you're doing is an actual craving desire attachment or not. The third question here that I often get is, do I need to give up all my possessions, occupation, and relationships to attain enlightenment? This is another question that often comes because they see that's what ordained practitioners do. Ordained practitioners essentially have two robes and a bowl. That's really all they have, typically. Nowadays, they have a cell phone and maybe a computer or something like that because they need to interact with the world, but essentially just two robes in a bowl. And people think that because that's what the monks do, that's what we have to do. Or the monks are giving up their occupation, their career for a period of time, or they're giving up their relationships. They don't have boyfriends, girlfriends, children. Their parents aren't even really considered their parents anymore. They've entered into what the Buddha called is homelessness. Well, that's the path of ordained practitioners. It's a very strict discipline. It's like being in the womb of a mother where you're more likely to attain enlightenment going in that direction, but that's not required in order to attain enlightenment. You can attain enlightenment in the household life, in the household lifestyle, but you just need to understand very deeply the teachings of the Buddha and practice them very deeply. So you don't have to give up possessions, occupations, and your relationships, but you will need to learn how to not have craving, desire, attachment for possessions. You will need to learn how to not have craving, desire, attachment to your occupation and not to have hatred, anger, ill will towards the people in your occupation. You're going to need to learn about relationships and how to practice true love, right? A ordained practitioner may or may not understand true love because they're not really involved in any relationships where a household practitioner or household teacher who's in a relationship with their children and their wife and other people, neighbors and stuff like this, they're going to have the wisdom to understand how to practice true love where you can maintain relationships but not be attached and have this craving, desire, attachment in relationships. So you don't need to give up these things. You just need to gain the wisdom how to practice the teachings along with your possessions, occupation, and relationships. Another question that's really, really common is, you know, what's the purpose in life? Or, you know, what's the purpose to this human existence? Well, I give a very long kind of talk in the book about this where I kind of go through and I kind of explain how it's really the human ego 
that is interested in understanding a purpose in life. Because back when there was prehistoric days, you know, kind of when humans first existed, which I think people date to about 200,000 years ago. That's a huge number. We can't even imagine 200,000 years ago. But that's essentially where people are dating. Humans kind of started to become about. Well, during that time, those human beings weren't trying to figure out what their purpose in life was because all they were interested in is sustaining their life. They were just like the gorillas, the apes, the elephants, the giraffes, everything else that existed during that time. They were just trying to sustain their life and figure out how to eat, how to get shelter, how to provide some kind of life for sustaining their life, right? That's all they were interested in. They were trying to figure out how to rub sticks together and make fire. They were trying to figure out some kind of way to communicate with each other, right? And now we've evolved so much as human beings that we've gotten to the point where we are the dominant being on this planet. We've pretty much eradicated 99% of all other beings that existed on this planet at one time. This is a scientist share this, that we've essentially had 99% of all beings go extinct over the course of history. So now that we are the dominant creatures on this planet, we kind of think like, well, what's our purpose here? What are we really supposed to be doing? And I go on in this talk in the book and kind of explain that there really is no purpose. We just exist, just like the squirrel, just like the ant, just like the fish, just like all these other animals in the world. We just exist. We've essentially occupied our time with relationships and hobbies and activities and jobs to sustain our life just to kind of occupy our time. But really, we're all just kind of existing and kind of trying to sustain our life in some way. And what the human mind is trying to do is create some kind of enjoyment out of this experience. But because the enjoyment keeps being impermanent and it keeps fading, and you can't hold on to that pleasant feelings permanently, the human mind with the ego tends to think, well, what's the real purpose here? There's really nothing here. And if you can get to that point where you acknowledge that there's nothing here, that's really important. That's really helpful on this path because there should be nothing that you cling to in this world. If you're clinging or holding on or craving anything in this world, you're still holding on and you're still craving for existence. The Buddha talks about this in the Four Noble Truths, that if we crave for existence, we're causing our own discontentedness. If we want to exist, then we will continue to exist because of craving, desire, attachment. In order to get to enlightenment, you've got to let go. And part of letting go is seeing that there really is nothing here for you. All of these material things are impermanent. All of these relationships are impermanent. All the occupations you've ever had are all impermanent. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy them while you're here, but as long as you hold on to them and crave them and desire them, it's going to cause discontentedness and therefore you're going to continue to experience this cycle of rebirth. So ultimately what I get to in this question is I say, there is no purpose, there's nothing here, but if you would like a purpose, 
their real purpose is for you to attain enlightenment. By learning and practicing these teachings to escape this whole cycle of rebirth, then you won't keep coming back to nothing. So if you ever sit around and you're bored or you're lonely and you feel like you have nothing to do, that's because there's nothing here. And rather than continuing to come back to nothing and experiencing nothing over and over and over again, the real wise practitioner would learn and practice these teachings, attain enlightenment, get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that is permanent, where now you will truly enjoy life and you're going to be like, hey, I can, I can hang out here for a while. This was kind of fun. That unenlightened mind, that was pretty miserable. But now that I've gotten here, like this is kind of nice, right? So rather than keep coming back to nothing, learn and practice these teachings, train the mind, get to enlightenment, make that your number one priority in life. Your possessions, your occupation, your relationships, all of these other things are really kind of secondary to your number one purpose, which is to escape this whole cycle of rebirth. Because once you experience getting to enlightenment, your mind will be so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and you will have such deep wisdom that you'll be able to help all the people around you if they choose. You can help them to experience this same mental state. But as long as you keep holding on and craving some purpose of this human existence, your mind's going to be discontent because there's just nothing here. A lot of times I'll see people post things on Facebook or they'll talk in conversation of, I would like to go find myself. I need to find myself. I need to get away from this world and go find myself. Well, good luck because you're never going to find it because the self doesn't exist, right? These are people that are trying to find some purpose and they just can't find it. Well, stop trying to find a purpose in life because the ego has this arrogance and wants purpose and just make your purpose in life to learn and practice to attain enlightenment so that you can end this whole cycle of coming back to nothing. And then the last one here before I open up for questions is I get this question a lot is what significance can I apply to dreams? Well, dreams are something that happens while we're sleeping. You know, we're talking about dreams when you're sleeping. And those dreams can be very pleasant and very enjoyable, or they can be very horrific and very horrible. And when you wake up from your sleep, you can be left with the memories of the dream. And sometimes this can make your day very disgruntled, very challenging. If it was a very difficult, hard dream or very uh, scary dream, it might create some discontentedness in the mind where you're sad or angry or frustrated throughout your day because of this dream. Or you can have a dream that's very pleasant and very enjoyable. And when you wake up, it feels very pleasant and it can put you in a very happy, excited mood. Well, both of those situations are discontentedness. Whether the mind is sad, angered, frustrated is discontent, but also if it's happy, excited, elated, especially if it's craving to have that same kind of dream again, it's going to cause discontentedness. What a wise practitioner would do is if you awake from a sleep and you start recalling a dream, do just like you do with everything else. Let it go. Don't even think about it. Don't try to figure it out. 
Don't try to put some significance to it. Don't try to crave with the mind, you know, what's the meaning there? What am I supposed to be doing? Is my dead relatives trying to communicate with me? Am I headed for some great opportunity in the next couple of weeks? Oftentimes people try to go to dream interpreters because they're craving a meaning to their dream. Well, this path is all about true reality, keeping the mind in the present moment. If the mind awakes from a dream and you're craving to know what that dream was all about, that's craving desire attachment. Your mind's going to be discontent until you figure out what you feel that dream meant or until you just let it go. So just let it go. There's times where I've woken up and there's been horrific dreams. And as soon as I recall it and I start seeing the memories come up, you just let it go. And if you've been training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation to let things go and focus on the breath, this should be easier and easier and easier. Recognize that the dream is not reality. Whether it was pleasant or it was painful, it's not reality. So just let it go. Don't try to figure it out. Also, this practice is all about keeping the mind in the present moment. A dream, once you awake, is in the past. So don't allow the mind to go to the past and try to figure out all about this dream. Maintain the mind in the present moment. If you awake and your goal is to take a shower, go talk to your life partner, your children, go have breakfast, get ready for work or whatever it is, focus on that. Just let go of this dream. The mind will produce all kinds of different stimulus during sleep, during meditation, in your daily life. The mind is a wild animal until you train it otherwise. So if you have dreams and you remember them, just let them go. As you get closer and closer to enlightenment, don't be surprised if you don't have dreams. You might have dreams for a period of time in your life and then they might completely vanish. This is not uncommon for people to experience no dreams for extended periods of time. So don't be surprised if that happens to you and you stop dreaming. People aren't required to dream. I've seen some people say that in order to get a good night's sleep, dreams are required. That's not a requirement. That's permanence, right? That's the mind craving permanence. How could the mind permanently have dreams every single day, every single night? The goal isn't to have dreams, hold on to the dreams, and allow it to cause the mind to be discontent. The goal is, is when you awake from the dream, to ensure that you're awoke, that you're fresh, that you're rested, and you're ready for your day. So don't hold on to your dreams or try to figure out what they mean. Let me pause here and see what questions you guys have before we move on any further. Hi, David. So I have a question about point number one, an exercise. Now, there are many different grades to exercise and anything beyond a light stroll or gentle cardio can at times be really hard work and you know, some kinds of fitness can be incredibly difficult. So I'm wondering if any of these kinds of exercises are any good for us, really? They're ostensibly good for us, but are they really? And can they have a place in our life practice? I think exercise is very, very helpful. Exercise can be really great. It can be a good application of right effort. 
right? Because right effort is all about eliminating unwholesome qualities, arising wholesome qualities. So if your mind is stressed or you're having anger or hatred, you get into the gym and you start exerting some physical exercise, that's a great application of right effort to move the mind beyond that hate and get into a more calm state of mind. So exercise, yes, it serves the purpose of helping the physical body to maintain its health and longevity, but it can also affect the mind in a positive way if we use it appropriately. And that's why you can't ever say that exercise is all bad or exercise is all good. It's all about how the mind relates to it and how the mind uses it. There's a big, huge gray area here. And the more that you understand the teachings and what your actual goal is, then you can figure out how to apply physical exercise if you choose in your life practice to help you with the physical health. And it can also help you with your mental health as well. Okay, thank you, David. We have a similar question from Will. He asks, would overexertion in fitness become discontentness? If you allow it to, right? Again, it's not a black and white thing. It's all about how the mind relates to it. So let's just say one person, Max, is pumping iron and pumping iron and he pulls a muscle. And he realizes he pulls a muscle, but he realizes that's an injury. He went a little bit too far, but it's going to heal. And he gets ice or he gets heat or however he decides to remedy it. And over time, he allows it to heal. But his mind is never discontent during that time frame. He just feels the pain. It's just physical pain. But he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get hostile. He doesn't get grumpy. It's just physical pain. So overexertion for Max, he recognizes the impermanent nature of it and he just takes care of it. But let's just say for me, let's say I'm in the gym pumping out and I get hurt and right away I get angry and frustrated and start cussing at the gym attendant that their equipment wasn't maintained well or maybe the person spotting me, I start blaming him that it's his fault or her fault, right? This is not right view. This is blaming everyone else for what I chose to do, which is overexert myself. So in that situation, yeah, it's an attachment and it's causing me discontent is not the overexertion itself. That's not the problem. It's how the mind relates to it. Because in the example with Max, he acknowledged it. It happened. He took responsibility for it. He knows that it's impermanent and he just made wise decisions to heal the body and get better, but never became discontent. But in my situation, I chose to blame everyone else and I got hot headed and maybe I even tripped and hurt myself some more because I was hot headed and going through the gym, you know, bad mouthing people. Right. So it's not about just one particular event or one particular situation that is or isn't a craving desire attachment that causes discontentedness. It's all about how the mind relates to it. We have a question from Kunal. What if I'm planning for a bodybuilding competition? Often it happens that bodybuilding is a kind of egotistic sport. Practicing Buddhism will both have a conflict. There's no conflict in terms of if somebody would be interested to be a Buddhist practitioner and be a bodybuilder. There's no conflict there. The challenge for someone who's a bodybuilder is there's a lot of emphasis on ego and arrogance, like you know, and there's also oftentimes a lot of emphasis on the self, the physical body. But it is possible 
for someone to learn and practice these teachings and be a bodybuilder. It's possible, I'm pretty sure. But that person who would choose to do that and are moving on their way to enlightenment would need to eradicate the ego and get rid of that, even though maybe everyone else around them have ego and arrogance. If you get rid of that and you have to eliminate this self and thinking that this physical body is the self. So a Buddhist practitioner can do anything you want. You can be a business person, you can be a bodybuilder, you can be a taxi driver, you can be a monk, you can be a teacher, you can be a a maid, a server, a garbage collector, the president of some country, the king of some country. There's no limitations in terms of what you can and can't do in order to progress on this path and attain enlightenment. It's all about how the mind is trained as it's doing what it's doing. So there can be a bodybuilder who has a lot of arrogance, ego, and a lot of self, thinking that this body is the self. But there can be another bodybuilder who has no arrogance and no ego and doesn't look at the body as the self and is just really interested in physical health and physical well-being. And that's the career path that they've chosen. And they find joy in going in that direction. And then maybe someday they end up being a teacher or a physical trainer or some kind of person that's helping other people to learn how to maintain their physical health. So it's not the occupation or the activity or hobby itself. It's all about the mind and how it gets trained and how it looks at these activities and hobbies. As a follow-up, David, how would this apply if they were doing it purely as a hobby rather than a occupation or a livelihood? And more generally, can enlightened beings have hobbies? Do they need hobbies? Sure. I mean, if enlightened being would like to pursue certain hobbies, like maybe they like gardening, or maybe they like volunteer work, or maybe they like other activities, but a enlightened being is going to choose activities that are more conducive to enlightenment. So for example, you wouldn't see any enlightened beings fishing or hunting, right? Because that's going to involve killing animals and harming animals by fishing and hooking them in the mouth. An enlightened being is not going to want to cause harm to that fish. Or an enlightened being is not going to want to kill a deer and eat a deer, right? An enlightened being just wouldn't do that. So if an enlightened being is going to have a hobby, it's going to be something that's conducive to these good, wholesome practices that help the mind practice these teachings rather than be opposite of some of the things that are along this path. Okay, thank you, David. I have a question about number two. Is medicine for the body an attachment? How would this apply in the case of chemically addictive medicines, in particular things like morphine, which are sometimes given even without permission from a patient? Or maybe even caffeine. We were talking about caffeine before class today. Could caffeine be considered a kind of medicine in very limited certain circumstances, even though it does have a slight addictive quality to it? Yeah, this is where you've always got to have awareness of mind and you've got to always apply wisdom, right? All of these teachings of the Buddha kind of balance on discernment, which is wise decision making, right? So I can give you examples 
of where medication, and you just mentioned some of them, where you become chemically dependent on the medication, I can give you examples where, yeah, in this particular situation, those are attachments because of the way the person's mind is using the medications. But then I can give you other examples where it's not an attachment. And that's where none of this stuff on the Buddha's path is black and white. That's why the Buddha doesn't just give an instruction manual and say, these are all the attachments, eliminate all these things from your life, and you will be pure, <laughs> right? He doesn't do that. He's providing you guidance that helps you understand how the mind works and how these natural laws of existence work so that then you can apply it in your life. So yeah, if somebody's chemically dependent to like oxycodone or other types of drugs, even if they're legal or not, if they're chemically dependent on that stuff and they're doing it out of heedlessness to chase pleasant feelings, that's an attachment. But if somebody just got in a car accident and broke their spine and they're given oxycodone in order to help them with the pain of that, the two people, they're both taking oxycodone, for example, but they're doing it with different in purpose and different intent. One person doing it for heedlessness one person doing it for a medical purpose. And this is where you've got to understand what you're doing, right? You've always got to understand this path. So this person who's maybe wakes up from a coma and realizes they're on oxycodone at some point needs to have awareness of mind to know I need to get off of this once my body's healed. Once this body's healed, I need to get off of this and don't allow it to become addictive, right? Because if you stay addicted to it where you don't really need it, then it becomes a craving, desire, attachment. And this is where navigating this huge gray area helps having a teacher and being able to ask. This is where personal appointments and personal discussions come in where students will have individual questions about things that are going on in their life and get some guidance to help them understand what they're encountering. And if somebody told me I'm taking oxycodone, is that an attachment? I wouldn't be able to say yes or no. I would have to ask them some questions in order to uncover what's going on in their mind and why they're actually taking it. So where a teacher comes in to play with this guidance is we're not here to tell you what to do. We're actually here to ask you questions, help you reflect and help you see the answers for yourself and come to your own conclusion. So. I would ask a student a series of questions to uncover whether this particular medicine or this particular medical procedure is or isn't an attachment. And for different students, it could be different. One student, oxycodone might be an attachment. For someone else, it might not be. It all depends on how the mind's relating to it and how the mind's deciding to use it. Got it. Okay, thank you, David. We have a question from Morgan regarding occupation. For me, the attachment to success and financial stability as a young man played a very big part in driving me to get a degree and a job to where I am now able to provide for a family. If I'd been on the path as a young man, I wonder if I would still have had that drive and therefore the ability to support a family as I do today. I find now with children, I'm not sure what advice to give them as they get older and are starting to think about careers. I want them to have financial stability, but I also don't want them to experience the discontentedness that I experience. How would a practitioner find balance? 
Yeah, so that's what this whole path is about, is finding that middle way and that balance. What we understand in the unenlightened mind is we understand drive, passion, go, 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 get what you want, go, 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 right? And we're kind of presented with all this materialism and we're taught that this is happiness and just go, 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 go and pursue this happiness, right? And that happiness is going to come to you through material wealth. But what you realize as part of this path is that material wealth may equal temporary happiness, but it's not permanent. And that material wealth, while an enlightened being can be wealthy, it doesn't mean everybody who's enlightened is poor and lives off of donations like I do. It means that you have a certain relationship with money that you understand that that money and that wealth isn't going to lead to long-term sustained contentedness and peacefulness. So what's driven you your whole life has been craving, desire, attachment, and that's what's gotten you to where you are. So you've known nothing different. You know nothing else. So you can't imagine what it would be like without that. So let me tell you what it's like without that. Well, the Buddha, he didn't have craving, desire, attachment by the time he was 35. He had eliminated that and he attained enlightenment. So for 45 years, he pursued the career of sharing these teachings into the world to help as many people as possible. 2,500 years later, look at all the success that he's had. There's temples everywhere. There's Buddhism everywhere. The whole world is all pretty much talking about meditation, right? So you can be very, very successful in the world, even more successful than in the unenlightened state when you have drive, passion, craving, desire, attachment. You will actually be more successful. But let's make sure we understand what success is. When I talk about success, I don't mean necessarily monetarily successful. What I consider to be success is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. That's successful if you can eliminate all your discontent feelings. Having wisdom to be able to lead your household so that your life partner and your children can experience that same mental state of enlightenment. Ensuring that you have life-sustaining food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical care, right? That's success. But do you need millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and you attach your contentedness to your bank account? And if your bank balance is X, you feel good. But if your bank balance is Y, you don't feel good. This is craving desire attachment in the area of wealth and money. So what we've got to do in order to get to enlightenment is we've got to redefine what it means to be successful. Success to me is being able to control your mind. Success to me is being able to help others when you can, but you've got to start with helping yourself. Success to me is leading a household where you've got your food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, and people in the household are calm and content and kind and loving and caring, polite, friendly, respectful to each other. This is a successful household. What the bank balance says, says nothing about our household. 
that bank balance has no indication of whether this household is successful or not. What's successful is that we spend time together, we have caring moments together, we're able to enjoy each other's company, we support each other, encourage each other, we motivate each other, we're not breaking each other down, belittling each other, disparaging each other. So that success is maintaining this warm, loving household. That's success. So we've got to completely redefine success. And when you eradicate craving, desire, attachment, when you eradicate hatred, anger, ill will, delusion, ignorance, and unknowing of true reality, when you eradicate all these three poisons, now what I shared earlier is you will actually be more successful. Because as long as you still have craving, desire, attachment, you're still going to experience discontentedness and the people in your household are going to still experience discontentedness. You're going to be making decisions out of these three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, and ignorance. You're still going to be making decisions out of those unwholesome roots. So therefore, unwholesome things are going to be coming back to you. But once you clear out those unwholesome roots and you're now practicing the wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, when you're practicing these, all the decisions that you're making in your household are producing good results. Nothing unwholesome is coming back to you or your family members. Everything that you're doing in the world, all the decisions you're making in your occupation, in your personal lives, everybody's getting along. There's this loving, kind, gentle, warm household because you guys are now making decisions out of the three wholesome roots instead of the three unwholesome roots. So if you redefine success, that it's this warm, gentle, loving household where we all live together, encouraging, supporting, and motivating each other, and you see how practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom can help you attain that, you will actually be more successful in all parts of your life having eliminated the three unwholesome roots. So you don't have to have this go, 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 go in order to be successful. In fact, that's hurting you because you're making decisions every day with that go, 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 that passion that maybe 80% of your decisions are going well, but then 20% is causing you problems. And you have to go back and you have to redo it and you have to start again or you're having problems or the household's having problems. If you're making decisions out of all the wholesome roots and the other members of the family are as well, then all the decisions that you're making are producing good benefits in your household. And you guys individually and as a group are going to be much more successful in the world. Right. I started a business when I was in America in 2000. And by the time 2015 rolled around, I was making a lot of money and I was helping a lot of people. But it took me 12 years to get to that point. Taking the money off the table, but just looking at the number of people that I was able to help. Quite a few thousand, right? But now, having eliminated all of these unwholesome roots and practicing the wholesome roots, in the last one year, of sharing these teachings. I've helped tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in just one year. 
So you can actually be much more successful in whatever it is that you choose to do, either as a business person, as a stay-at-home dad, as a entrepreneur, whatever you would like to get into, politician or whatever, you'll be much more successful having eliminated these three unwholesome roots and practicing the three wholesome roots. We have a follow-up from Rhonda. So is it that all of our decisions and actions boil down to our intention? It is not all good, not all bad. It is the intention and further the balance in that intention with a side of lack of ego and attachment. All of our decisions in the unenlightened state come out of these three unwholesome roots or three poisons or three fires, craving, anger, and ignorance. Our mind either really, really wants something really bad and we're seeking external satisfaction and we want to hold on to it permanently and we're go, 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 go and we make mistakes or we have anger where we're pushing people away. We're kind of fearful when someone disagrees with us, we get hostile and angry and we push people away or it's out of this ignorance or unknowing of true reality where the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand these good, wholesome teachings and how to make very wise decisions that would lead to good, wholesome results. And because the mind is making decisions through these three unwholesome roots in the unenlightened state, we end up having unwholesome results. Now, not all of our decisions are tainted with these three unwholesome roots, but a certain portion of our decisions are. And that's why we're dealing with certain unwholesome results in our life. And they just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And until we figure it out and we awaken to these natural laws of existence and we eliminate these three unwholesome roots where we're now making decisions through the three wholesome roots, until we do that and we gradually make that shift, our life's going to continue to have problems. We're going to continue to experience unwholesome results coming back to us about certain different things that are going on in our life, either personal or professional. But the more you learn these teachings and you start transitioning the mind and training the mind to make more and more decisions through these three wholesome roots, now you're going to have better and better results. You heard Max talk about this, about how his life is more smooth now, having practiced these teachings for two years very closely. He notices things are just very smooth, where things before were a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging. You know, it feels like you're almost like walking through mud sometimes when you're trying to make some of these decisions or you're mired in certain situations that just feel so burdensome. But once you learn these teachings and you transition to these three wholesome roots, now the decisions come so seamlessly and so fluid. It's just so obvious where before, because you had unknowing of true reality, you had ignorance, you didn't know how to quite make the decisions. You thought you were making good decisions because of the ego and arrogance, but they tended to kind of turn out bad in certain situations. But that's because you were unknowing of what you didn't know. You didn't know what you didn't know. So the more you understand these teachings and you see the truth and you know what you know, and you've got the wisdom, you start making wise decisions, the decisions are just so easy and seamless and so obvious for you that in the past where you really struggled and you weren't sure and you just sometimes guessed at it 
and just look to see what happened when it came back, whatever the result was, either potentially wholesome or unwholesome, as you transition to this more enlightened mind, you will know before you ever make the decision, this is going to have good results. But it takes time to transition in that direction. We have a question from Manal. Related to eliminating personal possessions and ego, certain monks go in the community for alms. Is there any practice a householder can have in order to be aware of this level of humility? You mean kind of start to practice that same level of humility? I think I understand your question, Manal, but I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to say a couple things, and if you could kind of clarify it a bit with Max, and then when I pause, I'll get more clarity from you. The monks were put on the bottom of society by Gautama Buddha. What's happened since Gautama Buddha's lifetime, particularly here in Thai society and throughout the world, is people have put the monks on the top of society. In fact, a lot of ordained practitioners feel like they're higher than the king of Thailand, right? Well, first of all, we shouldn't be comparing and measuring people of who's above and who's below anyone. We should all just be equal. There shouldn't be who's above and who's below. But what the Buddha did is he was a prince and he gave up his royal throne. He was about to become the king. He gave that up and went into homelessness where he just wore rags as a way of creating humbleness in his life where he didn't have this ego and arrogance thinking he was so great being a monarch. So he kind of instituted that as a practice amongst his closest disciples that they also entered into homelessness and wore rags. There's actually a story where someone gave the Buddha a very rich, very wealthy fabric to make a robe with. And he accepted the offering because he needed to accept it. And then he turned to one of his monks and he said, go rip that up and sew it back together because he didn't want to wear this very rich, wealthy fabric and look so wonderful, right? So the humility that the monks are practicing is part of their practice to empty the ego. And that's one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why they go into the communities in order to accept food. They're not begging because begging would be with a longing and eagerness, but they're walking and allowing people to offer them food if someone would like to offer them food as a free will choice. And this helps to do a lot of things, the reason why the Buddha instituted that whole practice. But one of the things that it does is it does promote humility. And that's one of the things that we need to do too, not in terms of going and begging for food or or doing that kind of practice, but we need to create humility in our life too. We need to do certain things, and that's why I devoted chapter 17 to emptying the ego and dissolving the ego. One of the things that I did is my wife has a massage shop in the city. Well, she used to before COVID. And when it was really active, I would go there and wash the feet of the customers. And I would get down on my knees and I would pull up my pants and I would wash their feet. And this created a lot of humility to be down on the floor. I mean, here I am, somebody that used to own a massage business in America. I had two different locations with a school and we were making close to a million dollars a year. And I was doing really, really well for myself. To go from that all the way to washing the feet of people going into my wife's shop, 
that I could feel arrogance and ego coming out of me when I did that. Or there's other practices that I did too to kind of ensure that there wasn't arrogance and ego there and that I emptied it out. But everybody's got to find those things for themselves about how to do that. And one of the things that really help with humility and emptying out the ego is having a teacher. There's lots of people out there that are off trying to become enlightened on their own. And they think that that's how to get enlightenment. Just accepting a teacher and seeking guidance from a teacher is an act of admitting to yourself that I don't know everything and I need help and I need guidance. And that can be really beneficial for the mind. And this is one of the reasons why I encourage people to have discussions with a teacher because it helps you with your ego. But there's a lot of practices that you can do to promote humbleness in the mind. We have a question from Kunal about relationships. How to deal with a failing relationship? Let's say I love a person and after being in a relationship, my partner's words start to annoy me. I get frustrated at her. I try to respond but not react, but often her words make me so angry and I react to it. How to handle it mindfully? You've got craving, desire, attachment. You may have love, you may love this person, but you also have craving, desire, attachment. That's why you're getting angry and having discontentedness with her words. So there's no just one thing that I can tell you of how to deal with it because the problem isn't the relationship. The problem is that your mind has craving, desire, attachment. You have mental longing with a strong eagerness. The problem is your mind. So the solution is to train the mind on this path to get closer and closer to enlightenment. This practice from the Buddha isn't about, I'm having this problem with my girlfriend, how do I solve it? Right, and giving you an answer of how to solve it. This is kind of what I think Brahmin priests do or Hindu teachers might do, some of them. What Buddhist teachings are about is recognizing that the real problem here in your relationship is your mind. The problem is that you have craving, desire, attachment. You have hatred, anger, ill will. You have ignorance, delusion, and unknowing of true reality. You have all these 10 fetters. And these things are what's causing your mind to be discontent. Because whether it's this particular partner that is your ex now, or some other partner, you're still going to get angry. You're still going to be discontent. It's not the partner. There's not just one decision that you can make or even a series of five or 10 decisions that you can make that's going to instantly solve the problems between you and your partner or ex-partner because the problems are in your mind. The problems is the craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentness. So what you're doing right now, learning and practicing these teachings, training the mind through meditation, that's what's going to not only solve this problem with your partner, but it's gonna solve the problem with your business partner, your children, your parents, your brothers and your sisters, your neighbors. All the discontentedness that you're experiencing in your life is coming from the same problems. So there's not just a series of decisions that you can make with this one partner that's gonna solve all of the problems in your relationship because the problems aren't there. The problems are in your mind that you want things to be a certain way and when she says things that you don't like or that you disagree with, you allow your mind to become discontent. 
I can't give you, you know, five or 10 decisions that's going to instantly solve this problem between you and your ex-partner because the problem is your mind. So learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings along this path in a comprehensive way to train your mind, that will solve not only the problems with your girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, but all your problems because all your problems are coming from the same problem, which is craving, anger, and ignorance. The three unwholesome roots. It all comes back to this. We have a short follow-up from Kunal. He just says that if I leave her, don't respond to her, she will be hurt. She'll be left out. Okay, so you've got to understand why is her mind hurt and feeling left out? Is it because you left her or is it because she has craving, desire, attachment to keep you? Is she causing her own discontentedness or are you causing it? You leaving isn't causing her discontentedness because that's just impermanence. You can't be with her permanently. Even if you guys were together for the rest of this life, one of you are going to die first. What the problem is, is that her mind has craving, desire, attachment that she wants to keep you permanently. She's causing her own discontent mind. So her mind is discontent because she's got craving, desire, attachment. You don't want to leave her because you've got craving, desire, attachment, and you feel like if you do leave her, it's going to hurt her, and you're the one causing the discontentedness. But you're not causing that discontentedness. She's causing it herself. As long as you guys stay stuck in this craving, desire, attachment, she's going to be discontent, and you're going to be discontent. Because even though you're together, you're still not peaceful with each other. You're still having problems with each other. I don't even know you or your relationship. I know you, but I don't know your relationship. But I know you guys have discontentedness. You probably argue, right? You probably get upset with each other and frustrated. How do I know this? Because you've got craving, desire, attachment. If there's craving, desire, attachment in the relationship, you're going to have discontentedness. So... The best thing you guys can actually do is eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. If you're going to stay in the relationship together, you're going to have to both be on this path and you're going to both have to be training your mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. Otherwise, you're going to keep having discontentedness over and over and over again. Or the other option is you guys are going to need to split. And by doing that, that will ultimately eliminate the craving, desire, attachment at some point, hopefully. But yeah, she's going to cause herself discontentedness because her mind isn't comfortable with the impermanence of you leaving. And you're not comfortable seeing her be discontent. And that's what's got you stuck and you don't want to leave. But you leaving isn't what's causing her discontentedness. She's causing it herself because of her craving, desire, attachment. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, great questions. You guys really have some wonderful questions. Let's go through these next few before we get to the other topic, which is how to determine if you're enlightened. The sixth question in the book is, can I be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth? couple things to share here. The interest to be Buddhist, this Buddhism or this Buddhist is just a label. By us getting rid of these labels, 
Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Muslim, black, white, Mexican, Asian, male, woman, transgender, gay, straight, whatever, Democrat, Republic, you know, whatever all the political things are out there, all these labels are just getting in the way because they're categorizing us and then we're deciding what team we're on and then we kind of fight over that, right? I don't, but other people do, right? They fight over this. So first of all, we got to get rid of this whole thing of I'm a Buddhist, you're a Christian, and now we're supposed to disagree and somehow we're different. No, at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all the same, okay? So that's the first part of this question. The second part of this question is we've got to get rid of belief. We got to stop believing everything. Stop believing things and looking for the truth, right? There's nothing on this path that we should ever believe. Don't ever believe anything. Learn and look at the truth. The Buddha used to say, come see, come see, investigate. Look at the teachings, apply them in life and see the truth for yourself. So there's nothing on this path that we should believe, including rebirth. Don't ever believe rebirth, okay? Look for the truth for yourself. There's enough truth out there. If you did research, you could see it for yourself. And if you're interested in this question, talk with me privately and I'll help you so you can see the truth on this a little bit closer. But just know that as you awaken the mind, you may observe past lives or you may have already observed past lives before even getting to enlightenment. You may have already been in that situation. So you already know that rebirth is true. But if you don't have any insight into rebirth right now whatsoever, what I suggest you do is you set that whole question to the side. It's just set rebirth to the side. Because what happened in the past with past lives, it's in the past, it doesn't matter. What may or may not happen in the future, it's in the future, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're human right now and you've got a discontent mind. By learning and practicing these teachings, you will get closer and closer to enlightenment. This whole rebirth question and understanding rebirth, it isn't dependent on your enlightenment. You can actually train the mind and eliminate the discontentedness in the mind and leave this whole rebirth question to the side. Because what happened in the past doesn't matter. What may or may not happen in the future doesn't matter. What matters is that you're human now. It's time to learn and practice and train the mind to attain enlightenment. Don't believe rebirth, but just set it to the side until you have more evidence and until it becomes a time where you might be interested in tackling that whole question. Okay? This next question is, what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same thing? The answer is no, they're not the same thing. A big misunderstanding is people think that Gautama Buddha taught reincarnation. He didn't teach reincarnation. He taught rebirth. Rebirth is the truth. This is the natural laws of existence, the cycle of rebirth. We'll talk about that in a moment. What reincarnation is, is reincarnation is the belief that there's a soul and this soul moves from existence to existence. And when you die, that soul moves to another existence and you're essentially the same person 
but just in a different form. Gautama Buddha didn't teach this because this belief is dependent upon a permanent soul that moves from existence to existence. The Buddha didn't teach that there is or isn't a soul. He didn't teach that. He didn't teach that there's anything permanent in the physical body. So this physical body is impermanent. So he didn't teach anything that's permanent in this body. And he taught the teaching of non-self. So the whole aspect and belief of reincarnation conflicts with impermanence. It conflicts with his undeclared teachings that he didn't declare whether a soul exists or doesn't exist. And it also conflicts with the teaching on non-self. So the Buddha never taught reincarnation. What rebirth is, is rebirth is this five realms of existence, heavenly realm, human realm, animal realm, afflicted spirits realm, and hell realm. These are the five realms that exist. And each life that we've had in the past or will have in the future is a new existence in a new realm. If we're reborn, we're going to have new existence in a new realm. But that's a completely new life. The only thing that moves from existence to existence is craving. Craving moves from one existence to the other and residual memories. So you can think of one existence as a cardboard box and another existence as a cardboard box. When this one dies, at whatever point there's a new existence, craving and residual memories go into this new cardboard box, but it's a completely brand new cardboard box. It's a new form, if you're in the human realm, in a new consciousness, but it has some residual memories and craving from previous lives. That's what the Buddha taught as the cycle of rebirth. We can get into that in a lot more detail if anybody's interested. We can go on and on and on with that for a really long period of time. And in the Pali Canon in English program, we actually, the biggest book that we have to study is all about the realms of existence. So we're going to be studying that on Saturdays. This is book 11. So it's going to be probably a good five to six months before we get to that one. But you can set that whole thing aside. What does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do this? During the lifetime of the Buddha, he talked about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. He talked about having confidence in him as a teacher that he is the fully, perfectly enlightened one. Because if you didn't think that he was actually enlightened, why would you ever study his teachings if you didn't think they actually led to something good? If you have access to his teachings, then you can progress on this path to enlightenment and you need to have confidence in his teachings. And you need to have access and be part of the Sangha or the community. So the Buddha is the individual, the Dhamma are the teachings, the Sangha is the community. And if you have confidence in all three of these, confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and you're a member of the Sangha or the community of Buddhist practitioners, now you can learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. What refuge is, is refuge is protection of the mind. 
where once you learn and practice these teachings and you get closer and closer to enlightenment, once you attain enlightenment, the mind is unshakable. Because discontentedness is completely eliminated, the mind never experiences sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, loneliness, boredom, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these discontent feelings and others are eliminated from the mind. So the mind has now taken refuge or protection because of learning and training in the teachings the mind now resides protected. It has taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. That's what it means to take refuge, okay? Is that you have this confidence in the Buddha, you have access to his teachings, and you are participant and member of the community to learn and practice these teachings, train the mind and get to this enlightened mental state where the mind's protected, it's unshakable, no longer experiencing discontentedness. Since the lifetime of the Buddha, people have invented ceremonies to take refuge with the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. This isn't something that the Buddha did. He would ordain monks on the side of the road. If he was walking down the street and somebody came up to him and said that they would like to be a monk, if he was going to accept them, he would organize an ordination right on the side of the road and say, okay, now you're a monk. We shaved off your head. Here's a robe. Come on, let's go, right? It's time for you to learn, right? There wasn't all this rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that we've got today in a lot of Buddhist communities. So these ceremonies that people are doing in order to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it's something that people invented after his death, and you don't need to do this in order to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. If you've done it or you plan to do it, okay. But that by itself isn't going to protect your mind. By going through a ceremony, it's not going to protect your mind. What's going to protect your mind and get you this refuge is that if you have confidence in the Buddha, you have access to his teachings, and you're a member of the community where you're learning and seeking guidance to train the mind to be protected and unshakable in this enlightened mental state we call Nibbana. So that's what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, but you might hear people talking about a ceremony, but this isn't what the Buddha taught. Why is enlightenment permanent? This is a question that often gets asked because a lot of people think the Buddha taught that all things are impermanent, that everything is impermanent. But the Buddha never taught that everything is impermanent. What he taught is that all conditioned phenomenon are impermanent. Conditioned phenomenon, right? Phenomenon are like mental objects. So conditioned feelings are impermanent is essentially what the Buddha said. All conditioned feelings are impermanent. Well, Anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, happiness, excitement, elation, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment. This is all conditioned feelings. Those feelings are arising in the mind based on some condition. You got a new car, you're happy. You got a new job, you're excited. You got a new girlfriend, you're excited. You and your girlfriend break up. You're sad, you're lonely, you're bored. 
You lost your job. You're angry. You're frustrated. Right? These are conditioned feelings. An enlightened mind has removed the conditions. It no longer has craving. It no longer has anger. It no longer has ignorance. It's removed all of these conditions. So therefore, it's unconditioned. The enlightened mind is unconditioned. And that's why it's permanent. Because the enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on any conditions whatsoever. An enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it's raining outside and when the sun is shining and when there's snow and when it's windy and when there's a hurricane coming and there's a tornado coming. Peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. An enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy if your kids come home with bad grades or they come home with good grades. Peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy if you get a new car or you don't. The mind isn't latching on to these external things to create internal feelings. An enlightened mind has transcended these external conditions that are causing internal feelings. An enlightened mind is inwardly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without any conditions. There's no condition that needs to be met in order to create the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And because the enlightened mind is unconditioned, it's permanent. The mind has been permanently moved to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If someone yells at you and is upset or calls you stupid or fat or ugly, it doesn't affect you. If someone says, you're so handsome, you're so beautiful, you're so kind, you're so wonderful, it doesn't affect you. You hear it, you might thank them, you might say, I appreciate your kind words, but it doesn't create happiness and excitement in you because you're just, okay, I'm just being peaceful. Someone calls you stupid, ugly, angry, whatever, whatever they call you in their anger, it doesn't affect you because an enlightened mind knows that that's their anger. An enlightened mind is no longer going to experience that anger. So it's permanent once the mind gets to this mental state. And there's been modern science that actually shows this same fact because as you're training the mind, the brain is not the mind. But there's changes to the brain that are happening as you're training the mind in these teachings. And this is called neuroplasticity. If you look online, this is a whole field of research where scientists are starting to research meditators and people that are you know, close to enlightenment. And what they're observing is that the physical structures of the brain are changing as a result of the training and meditation of Buddhist teachings. And once these physical structures change in this positive way, they never revert and go back to the way they were before. So not only does the Buddhist teachings share this about the mind, but now we've got scientists that are starting to show the same thing on the physical level with the brain. The brain and mind are two separate things, but they're essentially coming to the same conclusion that the Buddha came to 2,500 years ago. This next question, how do I become a Buddhist? 
again, we've got to get rid of that whole Buddhist category, that whole label of Buddhist, right? People oftentimes are wanting to become something, right? They're either moving from atheist to I would like to practice Buddhist or moving from Christianity to I'd like to be Buddhist or I'd like to be Christian and Buddhist, right? This is just a label of trying to adopt some kind of label to become something. The real question here shouldn't be, how do I become a Buddhist? The real question should be, how do I attain enlightenment? That's the real question that somebody should be asking. Because whether you call yourself or label this physical body as Buddhist or not, doesn't matter. What really matters is that you attain enlightenment because that's the purpose, right? So how you attain enlightenment is you need to seek guidance with the teacher through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings, independently verify the teachings for yourself so that you can acquire wisdom. When you don't believe the teachings and you independently confirm the teachings and see that they're true, now the mind has wisdom about these natural laws of existence that you didn't have before. When you were going around off the path in the unenlightened state, you didn't understand the natural laws of existence and you were just kind of haphazardly tromping through life and you were experiencing all kinds of different miseries. Well, what becoming Buddhist or walking this path to enlightenment is all about is seeking guidance to learn the teachings, reflect on them, and practice the teachings so that you can see more and more that you're acquiring this wisdom and now the mind starts functioning through this wisdom where now you don't experience discontentedness or you limit it and completely eventually get rid of it. But you need guidance from a teacher. Only a Buddha would be able to do this without a teacher. The last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. And everybody who's ever attained enlightenment since then will have needed a teacher because you need guidance. How did you learn the ABCs? With a teacher. How did you learn how to read and write? With a teacher. How did you learn how to walk and run? With a teacher, right? How did you learn how to do pretty much everything in your life? With a teacher. So this enlightened mental state, you need a teacher in order to learn and practice, but don't believe your teacher Learn, reflect, and practice so that you gain wisdom and now the mind starts functioning differently in the world because it now understands these natural laws of existence. It's eradicating this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, because that's the problem that's keeping the mind stuck in this whole unenlightened state. So we've got to eradicate the ignorance in order to resolve this unenlightened mind and get to this wisdom, which is going to help the mind move to enlightenment. This last question here, number 11, is why are donations of support for teachers of Gautama Buddha's teaching so important? Well, there's kind of two aspects to this question. The first one is, in order to continue these teachings in the world, there needs to be some support and there needs to be some type of offerings in order to continue the teachings. Since the lifetime of the Buddha, there's been support from 2,500 years ago all the way till today 
of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, and financial support to various ordained practitioners as well as teachers like me. And that's the only way that these teachings have continued in the world all the way to the point where the teachings are reaching you now today. Without this generosity of people making offerings of time, effort, energy, and resources, we wouldn't have these teachings in the world today. And without that support in the world, the teachings would have fizzled out a long time ago. But because the teachings are helping people and they're seeing the benefit in them, this is why for over 2,500 years, people have been donating land and food and supplies and support and time and effort to help everyone in the community to learn and practice the teachings. There is no centralized organization that collects and distributes these teachings out in the world. So there's nobody who's drawing in money, providing it to some centralized organization to organize all of the teachings and share them out into the world. That's not what Gautama Buddha set up. You essentially have a massive amount of ordained practitioners and teachers like me that are out there teaching. And then whatever community assembles around us, they will offer donations of time, effort, energy, and resources to help us continue our goal of sharing the teachings into the world. So that's the first thing, is that it helps to continue the teachings in the world. The second thing is that generosity leads to enlightenment. Without you practicing generosity, there's no way that you would ever get to enlightenment. And that generosity would need to be in lots of different directions, not just towards your Buddhist teacher, but in other parts of your life too. And it doesn't have to always be money. Remember, we're talking about time, effort, energy, and resources. You know, you can share your potato chips with somebody. You can share a smile with somebody, right? This is generosity. But why are donations needed? Because of the continuation of the teachings, but also in order to attain enlightenment, you would need to have confidence in the Buddhist teachings. You would have to have access to his teachings and you need to be part of the community. Well, if you're going to remove any kind of doubt about the teachings that you have and you're gaining this benefit through learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, but you weren't sharing generosity to continue the teachings, then you still have doubt and you still don't actually think that these teachings are really benefiting you. So therefore, you're not going to get to enlightenment because you haven't chosen to share and live open handedly. You're still holding on to your time, effort, energy and resources. So by sharing with your temples, your teachers, the ordained practitioners, you're actually continuing the teachings and you're also practicing generosity which is the first wholesome root. The primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered is craving, desire, and attachment, where the mind wants to hold on and search externally for satisfaction. Well, the way to transform that is with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity by you sharing with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, with your family, but we're talking here about, you know, Buddhism and Buddhist teachers. By sharing with your Buddhist teachers, you're actually practicing living open-handedly where you're letting go. 
And as you do this, it's training the mind to let go and let go and let go. And this is beneficial for you. This is helpful that you don't hold things really tight. But what I always share is you've got to find the middle. You can't share every last little penny or money or time or effort or energy that you have, but you also can't share nothing either. You've got to find that middle and that middle is going to change for you from month to month or week to week. It might change. So you've got to find a way to practice this generosity in all directions of your life. But you should share with anybody who's sharing teachings with you because this is the natural law of gamma. If we enjoy teachers who share openly and freely without charging a price for learning in classes, if that's what we enjoy and that's what we expect, then we've also got to do our part in sharing resources generously to help those people because nobody can exist in this world with zero dollars or zero money. Nobody can. You have to have food and water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. So if someone's sharing with you, you should also share with them to benefit their life because what they're doing is benefiting you. But any teacher who is sharing these teachings in the way that Gautama Buddha set up is they shouldn't have a, a price to join. They should be open to all people and share openly and freely. They should have set up their life in such a way that they can live on just basic food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical care, right? If you have a teacher who's riding around in a Rolls Royce with Rolex watches on, teaching you how to attain enlightenment, well, they haven't attained enlightenment themselves if they're wearing a Rolex watch and rolling around in a Rolls Royce that they're driving because they're still interested in acquiring wealth and professing and kind of looking a certain way with a Rolex watch. So anybody who's really sincere and dedicated to sharing these teachings into the world, in my opinion, wouldn't be setting prices for students. They would offer their teachings openly and freely. But in that same scenario, they're going to need some kind of offerings in order to sustain their life with food, shelter, water, clothing, and medical supplies. So this is why we have donations is to help the continuation of the Buddhist teachings, but also to give household practitioners the opportunity to practice generosity because generosity leads to enlightenment. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. We have a question from Michael, which came in when you were talking about ignorance. Michael asks, is it ignorance when you already know the Buddha's teachings, but sometimes refuse or ignore to practice it? Yes, that's still ignorance. You might know the teachings intellectually, but you're not practicing them. This is how we know when someone's enlightened or not, because we observe their practice. If someone sits down and talks to you intellectually about the teachings, or if you, Michael, know the teachings intellectually, that's just one component of building up your practice. You actually have to get to the point where you're not just understanding intellectually, but you're practicing the teachings. So if somebody's not practicing the teachings, that is still showing that they have ignorance in the mind. It's not just intellectual understanding. We have a question from Manal's husband. He asks, if everyone is peaceful, calm, and serene, 
would we not lose the richness of human existence, which includes the manifestation of excitement, happiness, and other range of emotion? I don't think so at all. Here in our family, we have lots of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentness with joy. We joke, we laugh, we have fun. Nobody gets angry or upset with each other. We just enjoy life because there's no painful feelings. There's no you know, extreme excitements. We joke, we laugh, we have fun, but then we bring the mind right back to the middle. Rather than dwelling on those pleasant feelings, rather than craving those pleasant feelings, rather than chasing those pleasant feelings, And when those pleasant feelings aren't there, then the mind swings to the painful feelings. Rather than having that swinging back and forth, that constant up and down, our household here is just very chilled, right? My son today, he actually lied. I caught him in a really big lie. We had some pretty serious talk today. We sat down and we really had a serious talk, but afterwards we went outside we played we had fun he rode bike he helped his mom in the garden but there was some important things that we needed to discuss today and we framed that whole discussion around the buddhist teachings and what was important for his life and he understood that he accepted responsibility for it and then we moved on and we had fun for the rest of our day and we left that behind us and now he knows he needs to get better and better at stopping this lying. So it's not that you're never going to laugh or joke or have fun because you remove these pleasant feelings. What you're removing is the condition that needs to be there in order to create the pleasant feelings. You're no longer going to have a mind that's only experiencing happiness, excitement, and elation when there's some condition met, right? Even in the situation where I needed to talk to my son about his lying, it was actually still joyful for me. I, like I wasn't smiling and laughing because I needed to show him that it was serious. But inside, it was joyful because here was a situation where he really needed to understand the teachings and it was important that he got it. And seeing his eyes open up and seeing him understand and seeing him accept responsibility It was joyful, but I didn't dwell in that, right? So you're just removing all these conditions where the mind requires certain conditions to be met in order for there to be joy. The mind's just going to always be joyful. So you're still going to have a good time. You're going to have a lot better time because when you have that impermanent happiness, eventually the mind's going to swing back to the other side. But when you have permanent joy, it's always going to be joyful. It's never going to leave. It's like the light is always on. (laughs) We have a question from Will. My question is, isn't happiness another form of joy? Wouldn't joy become a discontent feeling? I describe joy differently than the way it's defined in the dictionary. Because if you look in the dictionary, joy means like happiness. I think that's the way it describes it. So Happiness, excitement, elation are pleasant feelings that are based on some condition. The way that I'm defining joy is as a mental state that's not based on any condition. That's the difference. Thank you very much, David. We have no more questions. Okay. 
Now, let's move to what I was thinking that you guys would probably be interested to spend some time on, which is how to determine if you attained enlightenment, okay? This is something that may become more and more interesting to you as you go, or you may even be interested in it now, okay? The first thing is, is you should never consider yourself enlightened, okay? I'll teach you how to determine if you are enlightened, but you should never consider yourself enlightened. There's just no benefit in doing so. If you consider yourself enlightened, the mind has a tendency to become sluggish, to become lazy, and to lack any kind of motivation because you think, aha, I'm enlightened. Look at me. Look how great I am. Well, if that's the way you think, you're not enlightened, right? Because there's arrogance there. There's pride, right? If the mind becomes lazy and sluggish, you're not enlightened because you're not practicing the enlightenment factor of energy. So as soon as you determine for yourself in your mind that you are indeed enlightened, that's typically where a lot of danger starts happening because the mind starts slipping into being sluggish, lazy, arrogant, egotistical. So right off the bat, I'm going to suggest that you never consider yourself enlightened. Even when you meet all of these criteria, just never consider yourself enlightened. Because this path that we're talking about to enlightenment, there's not a ribbon at the end of it that once you cross it, you're like, ah, thank goodness, I've, I'm done the race. Where's my water? Where's my reward? Where's my medal? Where do I get my acknowledgement? And where do I just sit back and rest? That's not what this path is all about. The way you should think about this path is that it never ends. Is you're just always learning, always practicing, gradually learning and progressing on this path to enlightenment. Now you will get to a point where you meet these criteria that I'm talking about and I'm about to share with you. You will get to that point. But when you do, you should never stop practicing the teachings. And by the time you get to that point, you wouldn't even fathom stopping to practice the teachings. You're incapable at that point of stopping to practice the teachings. Right speech will be so ingrained into the mind that you would be incapable of ever saying anything harsh. You would be incapable of gossiping about somebody. You would be incapable of talking with anger, right? So when I say never stop practicing the teachings, once you actually attain enlightenment, you will be incapable of stopping to practice the teachings because the mind has so much wisdom about the teachings that it's first nature. It's like you're upgrading your mind from unenlightened 1.0 to enlightened 9.0. Once you're at enlightened 9.0, you can't downgrade back to version one. There's just no way it's not going to happen, right? So, You'll never stop practicing the teachings, but you should never consider yourself enlightened because there's more and more wisdom that you can gain, not just on the Buddhist path, but in your career, in your family life, in your personal life. There's lots of wisdom in the world. You will never learn everything there is to learn in the world. So don't ever stop practicing the teachings and don't ever consider yourself enlightened. But the way to know that you are enlightened is that you'll be fully practicing the Eightfold Path. 
That includes the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts. The Eightfold Path is something that I've explained very deeply throughout this program, and we're going to explain it some more and get more into it when we restart the group learning program next week, which involves things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You will be fully practicing this to perfection. You will never slip and say something harsh to somebody. You will never talk in a disparaging way. You will never belittle people. You will never judge other people. You'll never look down on others. You'll never cause harm through your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood. You will have mental discipline where you're able to control your mind so well that you will never experience any kind of harm from others because you're not causing any harm to others. Okay. So as you learn more and more from this book and you know what the Eightfold Path is, you'll be practicing this to perfection which includes the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts. And you will be practicing it for a long period of time. It's not just like, okay, I mastered it today, so now I'm enlightened. And then tomorrow, oh, I slipped, I'm not enlightened, right? You're going to need to be practicing it for many months and years where it becomes so part of who you are. It's soaked into the mind so deeply that you've fully upgraded to this enlightened mind 9.0, right? Number three is when you fully attain enlightenment as an arahant, you will have eliminated all the 10 fetters. There's 10 fetters, which we're going to talk about in about a month, where once you've attained enlightenment, you will have eliminated all of those 10 fetters. And I'm going to go through each of the 10 fetters, explain to you exactly what they are and how to eliminate them. And once they're fully eliminated for an extended period of time, then you will know that you're enlightened. Number four, you've cultivated in the mind and completely practicing the Brahma Viharas. This is chapter 13 in the book. The Brahma Viharas are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are mental states that need to be practiced. And the more you practice them, again, it will just become first nature. You will no longer revert back to being hatred and anger and ill will because you're always practicing loving kindness. You're always practicing compassion. Sympathetic joy is about having joy for others' success. It's essentially the opposite of jealousy, right? So you'll no longer experience jealousy. You'll have joy for others' success. Equanimity is all about evenness of temper, evenness of mind, especially in difficult situations, and that you will always view everyone as equal. So if your mind gets stressed or you feel pressure in difficult situations, you're not yet cultivated equanimity and the mind is not yet calm and peaceful in difficult situations. So someone who's practicing the Brahma Viharas will be practicing all four all the time and they will never waver on those four mental states. The fifth one is that you'll be practicing the seven factors of enlightenment. This is something else that I'll talk about in about a month where we'll go through each of the seven factors and ensure you understand what they are very clearly so that you can be practicing those. 
but you will have been practicing those. And this really helps to fine tune the mind and bring it into clear focus. And then lastly, you will know for yourself that you've attained enlightenment because you will have eliminated 100% of all discontentedness from the mind. You'll no longer feel stress, anxiety, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, loneliness, guilt, fear, boredom, shyness, jealousy, resentment. All of this is removed from the mind. The mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You won't have that happiness, excitement, and elation based on conditions, but the mind will just be permanently joyful. Your life will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you will no longer experience any discontentedness whatsoever. And that's how you will know that you've attained enlightenment. And what will happen is as you get closer and closer, you will get glimpses of enlightenment where for a few days or maybe a few hours or maybe a few weeks, your mind will be completely peaceful. But then ah, you got angry at something or you got frustrated, you got discontent, but you know what that is because by this time you're in like the second or third stage of enlightenment. And now you apply your practice You train the mind some more, and now you get a month or two where it's peaceful, completely peaceful. You're experiencing this joy coming through, lots of contentment, and then ah, you get frustrated about something. And then you'll get three months or four months or six months, and then you'll talk harshly to somebody. And you're like, why did I do that? That was silly of me. Let me apologize, right? And then you'll get longer and longer periods of time, and eventually... You'll get to a point where you have years of the mind being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's no discontentedness whatsoever. There's no arising of craving. There's no arising of anger. There's no arising of ignorance. There's no discontentedness. You're holding the practice of the Eightfold Path, which includes the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts. All those fetters are eliminated. You're practicing the Brahma Viharas and you've got the seven factors of enlightenment well-rooted and being practiced all the time, right? And this just takes time for you to build up to that because you need to understand what all these things are and you need to get the mind under training. So this is why the Buddha talked about it as gradual training. There's not just you're enlightened or you're not. It's not a light switch. So you're going to get these glimpses, even though it's not a light switch. It's like a light flickering and the light's going to be on for a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of hours and then it's going to go out and then it's going to come on for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and then it's going to go out and then it's going to come on. So you're going to get all these glimpses of what enlightenment looks like and then you just work on expanding that amount of time more and more and more until it becomes all-encompassing where it's permanent. And that's where it's helpful, once again, to spend time around your teacher because we're going to do things to make sure that you're enlightened. We're going to do things to kind of test your mind a bit, right? And I'm not going to share what those things are, but we're going to do things just to kind of ensure that you are enlightened because we don't want to guess that you are enlightened, when you really aren't, 
because there's going to be rebirth. And this is one of the reasons why you should never consider yourself as enlightened because there might be some little dust in the corner of the mind somewhere that didn't quite get cleaned out. And if you assume you're enlightened and you kind of become lazy and complacent about everything, well, we know you're not enlightened if you become lazy and complacent. But if there's a little bit of dust there and you assume that you're enlightened and you're not progressing and continuing to go forward, then you might actually get to the end of this life thinking you're enlightened. And in fact, you're not. And you're going to experience rebirth. There's a lot of people in the world who think they're enlightened and they're really not. And they're going to have a very sad awakening when they die and they get reborn. So the better approach is just never consider yourself enlightened. Even when you've eliminated discontentedness, just never consider yourself enlightened and always be progressing to learn and practice and improve your life practice more and more and more and more. Because if you never assume that you're actually enlightened, once you eliminate discontentedness, the mind continues to ascend, right? Once you eliminate discontentedness and there's been cessation of discontentedness, by not assuming that you're enlightened, by you continuing to train the mind and continuing to gain wisdom, your mind will continue to ascend to higher and higher levels of consciousness. We call these four stages of enlightenment stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant, as if arahant is a destination. It's not a destination. Sure, you will arrive and people may consider you an arahant, but if you never consider yourself an arahant and you just keep going, you just keep ascending and ascending and ascending and gaining more and more wisdom. So there's no benefit in you ever really considering yourself enlightened, but it's kind of helpful to know that, yeah, once you've eliminated discontentedness in the mind, you're pretty much, you're enlightened at that point. But there's no reward, there's no ceremony, there's no getting up on a stage and declaring that you're enlightened. It's just like, okay, well, keep washing the dishes, keep cleaning your underwear, <laughs> you know, keep going to work, you know. So what? You've gotten rid of discontentedness, major accomplishment. But if you're really prideful and excited that you got to enlightenment, you're not enlightened <laughs> because an enlightened being is not going to have pride and they're not going to have conditioned excitement based on getting to enlightenment. So if somebody tells you, Max, you're enlightened. Really? I'm enlightened? No, you're not. <laughs> you just got excited because I told you you're enlightened. And that was the condition that created the excitement. And now we know that you're not enlightened, <laughs> right? So if somebody tells you you're enlightened and you get excited, then you know you're not enlightened. Or if you're prideful or arrogant that you feel you're enlightened, you're not enlightened yet. Or if you want to go around and tell people, hey, by the way, Max, I'm enlightened. Hey, Judith, guess what? I'm enlightened. There's still arrogance and ego there. You still have craving. You still have a longing and strong eagerness to tell people you're enlightened. So you're not yet enlightened, right? So there's all kinds of things like this that it's important that you come around a teacher and that you spend time with the Sangha. You spend time with the community so that you can 
gain some insight into what areas of your practice you may need to look at. Okay, so I'm going to pause here and see what questions you guys have. So in the first point, you made the point, David, that this path never stops and that even an enlightened being would continue to gain knowledge and there's always more wisdom they can acquire. And at the same time, one of the ten fetters is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So I presume we're not saying that when we eliminate unknowing of true reality that one knows everything and that actually in this existence it would be impossible to know everything because there's still wisdom we can learn. So how can we uh, bring those two statements together and what do we mean by ignorance when we talk about the ten fetters? Yeah, when we're talking about ignorance, we're talking about unknowing of true reality unknowing of these natural laws of existence, unknowing of the Buddhist teachings. There's still going to be certain things that you don't know, right? If you're a car salesman, you might not know how to clean a toilet or you might not know how to bake a cake, right? There's still wisdom in the world that you don't know, that you're unknowing of. <clears throat> but when we talk about eradicating ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, what we're talking about is eradicating the mind's unknowing of true reality of these teachings and of these natural laws of existence. And when you eradicate that, you will then actively train the mind to become more and more enlightened. And eradicating that unknowing of true reality is what we talk about when we talk about gaining wisdom. But then beyond the Buddhist teachings, there's tons of wisdom out there. I mean, you can be an IT professional, a doctor, a nurse, a custodian, a taxi driver, a server, an entrepreneur, a politician, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, a grandparent, work in charity. There's lots of ways, you know, that you can learn, you know, marketing, all these different things that are out there to learn in the world. But this ignorance is all about the unknowing of these natural laws of existence that lead to enlightenment. These natural laws of existence, once you learn them and gain the wisdom of them, you will have the wisdom of what it takes to get to enlightenment. Because once you attain enlightenment and on this path, you will never forget what it took to get to that mental state. All the wisdom that you learned that it accumulated to the point where you've eliminated discontentedness 100% and you're now enlightened you will never forget that wisdom. So you will retain that wisdom for the rest of your life. And then you might choose to learn other things, right? You might choose to be an inventor or open up a car auto detailing shop or a bakery or a pet grooming center or who knows what you might do in your life and on your path. But there's lots of wisdom out there. But this particular ignorance, this particularly unknowing of true reality and this wisdom is all related to these good wholesome teachings that lead to enlightenment which i call the natural laws of existence thank you david i also have a question about the brahma viharas uh, you mentioned that in practicing sympathetic joy we would never experience envy and it got me wondering can we see this point as the absence of those negatives is one who never experiences ill will and never experiences cruelty, never experiences envy, and never experiences a lack of equanimity. 
does that person sort of by default have the positive aspects of those, the four Brahma Viharas? Not necessarily. In order to practice the four Brahma Viharas, yeah, those discontent feelings won't exist or those mental states of envy or jealousy or whatever won't exist. But in order to practice the Brahma Viharas, there's an active role of practicing loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. But once you do, once you upgrade this mind to be practicing all these things, including the Brahma Viharas, it'll just become natural for you. I talked in other classes about how when you're moving from the unenlightened mind to the enlightened mind, it's almost like there's this brick wall that you're trying to break through. There's times where you're around certain people, your mind's discontent, you're frustrated, you know you're supposed to be practicing loving kindness and compassion, but uh, it's just getting under your skin and you just don't like it and you're quietly frustrated. Well, you got to break through that brick wall and you've got to just buckle down and just smile and say, you know, it's nice to see you. See you next week. Whatever you're involved in, whatever situation where in the past you wanted to be angry, you wanted to be vindictive, you wanted to say something sarcastic, you wanted to say something witty to kind of get under their skin because you kind of feel that they're getting under your skin, but you're the one that's actually doing that. But as the mind transitions, you start to realize that that sarcasm and that wittiness to get under someone else's skin isn't going to lead to anything beneficial. So why do it? So you've got to actively practice. You've got to take an active role in practicing these four Brahma Viharas and all these other teachings. But as you do and you break through those walls, it becomes easier and easier where it becomes first nature. And that's just the way that you always operate. You always operate. Like I sat down before class and I had I had some cookies and Judith was here early and I was eating them and I was like, oh, I wish I could offer Judith some cookies. It's just like it's just natural that whenever I'm eating something, I'm always offering something to somebody. But I couldn't offer any because she's on Zoom. Right. But it was just natural feeling like, oh, I would like to offer you some cookies because I'm eating cookies. You should be eating cookies. And if she said, no, I don't want any, then that's fine. You know, but I just always offer. Now, I didn't feel awkward. I didn't feel guilty that I couldn't offer her any cookies, but it was just kind of a natural habit. So as you learn and practice these teachings, it just becomes natural and instinctive that you're always functioning that way. And the mind can never revert back to being stingy ever again. It just will not ever happen. Got it. Okay, thank you. We have a question from Min. Before enlightenment, do I have to pay back for everything that I did? I mean, some bad things. I don't think of it as paying things back, right? A lot of times in these type of teachings of Buddhism, Christianity, and Muslim teachings and others, we think about sin, we think about bad things, we think about being judged by other people or other entities, and we think about we've done all these bad things and I've got to pay this back and I've got to incur all these bad things, right? Don't think of it that way because that's going to make you think about all of this as punishment and rewards. And maybe what you start doing is you just start following the teachings 
because you want some reward. And that's not going to promote the kind of mind that you need in order to attain enlightenment. So you need to learn the guidance of the Buddhist teachings. You need to practice them so that you can experience the results. But those results are going to come through your good, wholesome decisions. But yes, if you've made unwholesome decisions in the past, you're going to have to clean that up. And let me give some examples from my life. Prior to me really diving into this practice, I did some, a lot of bad things. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of bad things. Okay. Particularly involved in the relationship with my wife. So when I started getting into these teachings and I started practicing these teachings closely, while I was cleaning up my practice very quickly and very readily, and I no longer did those things, didn't mean my wife was just like, oh, great, wonderful. You know, David's talking nice, being kind, being polite, being friendly. Okay, all that's in the past. No, she was still angry. She still had resentment, right? She still had frustration. She may have even had some guilt, right? So even though I was cleaning up my practice, there were times where she would yell at me and yell and get very frustrated at me. But by that time, I knew, which I didn't know in the past, but I knew by that time that yelling back at her wasn't going to solve anything. It wasn't going to fix anything. So for a good year and a half, two years, she would have sporadic yelling and upset and being frustrated at me. And I would most often just be quiet and just let her go because she had to extinguish that. She had to extinguish it. And I had to extinguish the unwholesome results of the things that I had done in the past. All of this gamma, all of these unwholesome results, because of the cause or the actions that I did, I was getting the results. And I had to go through that. And I knew that yelling back at her or getting frustrated back wasn't going to solve anything. So in some cases, I just stood there and let her go. Other cases, I just walked away. Other cases, we were driving and she was in the car and I was driving and I just smiled. And I just kept looking ahead and she just went for it, right? She was just yelling and screaming at me. I just drove and smiled. Because by that point, I knew that if I yelled back at her, it wasn't going to extinguish these unwholesome results. Because the whole reason why she was yelling at me is because in the past, I was yelling at her. I had conditioned her mind based on my habits, based on my practice, which wasn't a practice. It was just me being me, what I was taught and grown up to do, is me yelling at her all the times in the past conditioned her mind that when she became frustrated, that means she yelled back at me. So this was my gamma coming back to me because I had yelled at her for different times throughout the various years. Now she was yelling back at me. But the solution wasn't to yell back at her. That was just going to keep the cycle continuing to go. So I knew at that point, the way to extinguish this is just to be quiet. Just let her go. And in some situations, after I let her go, then 30 minutes later, an hour later, I would go talk to her and spend time with her and talk to her. And we would discuss things. And gradually, she's gotten to the point now where I can't remember the last time. Oh, no, she yelled at me. No, she yelled at me last week, two weeks ago. She yelled at me. 
but I, I was just smiling the whole time. I never said anything back to her. <laughs> and me and my son actually started laughing. <laughs> but this is what you're going to have to deal with. Anything that you've done in the past, based on the relationships around you, you're going to have to deal with that. But through learning and practicing the teachings, you're going to have more wisdom of how to deal with it. So in those situations where my gamma, my unwholesome results were coming back to me, by that time, I had the wisdom of how to deal with it. And the wisdom was don't yell back, either walk away or smile or just be quiet or whatever. I handled it a lot of different ways at each situation, but it's gradually extinguished. And even though she was yelling at me a week or two ago, it was very brief. It was very short. It was actually kind of comical. She was she was actually yelling at me because I'm always talking about Buddhist teachings. Not always, but I'm you know kind of doing things here and there and discussing Buddhist teachings. She's like, you're always talking about Buddhism. You're always talking about Buddhism. Why do you always have to be talking about Buddhism? And me and my son were just laughing and smiling. And then by the time she was done with it, it was over. It was like 10 minutes long. And then, boom, she was back to being her normal self again. But that was the first time she had yelled at me in a long time. But this was her. I didn't cause that. That was her mind craving me to talk about what she wanted to talk about. But I wasn't interested in talking about that. So that was her mind that produced that. So you are going to have to experience anything that you've created or anything you've produced and once you gain the wisdom that you need to deal with it like in this household i help my son and i help my wife to learn and practice these teachings so that gradually the whole family is extinguishing these unwholesome roots extinguishing these fires and just kind of cooling down and just putting out the fire and it was really interesting because I was surprised my wife was actually yelling at me a week or two ago because she hadn't done that in such a long time. But since then, I hadn't really thought about it. That's why I said she hasn't yelled at me in a long time because it was in the past. I totally forgot about it until right now talking about it. We just put it in the past and move on, right? I didn't even go to her and say, are you sorry? Do you want to say sorry? You need to say sorry. Why haven't you said sorry? That's my mind craving something from her. Just when she was done, she was, oh, the other thing she yelled at me, she said, you never follow me. Why don't you ever follow me? You never follow me. And I said, why should I follow craving anger and ignorance? There you go. That Buddhism again, right? You're always talking about Buddhism. I was like, but honestly, why should I follow craving anger and ignorance? So these things are going to come up in your life. But you'll have the wisdom of how to deal with them and you just let them go. And then you can get to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy where no matter what happens, even your wife yelling at you, it won't shake up your mind. You'll just feel completely calm and peaceful. Great stories, David. Thank you. I'd like to just ask a little clarification here. So does this mean that enlightened being has put in the causes for uh, positive results and they've eliminated the causes for unwholesome results and harms come to them but harm may still come to them as the result of things they did before they eliminated those causes where they eliminated the craving the anger and the ignorance that led to that 
an enlightened being is no longer going to experience any harm coming to them because it's already been extinguished all that's been extinguished through many months and years of practicing the eightfold path because it's the eightfold path that's going to extinguish all of that right so if you've been speaking harshly and aggressively to people in your life and you just decide to start practicing the eightfold path and now you're speaking right speech for the last one week you're not enlightened yet. Your mind still has a lot of training to do, but people are going to be speaking harsh and aggressive with you because it's only been one week that you've been speaking this way. You've got to produce enough wholesome results that you get nothing but wholesomeness back. So this is why when I first started practicing the teachings very closely, I was still getting people yelling and hollering at me and being angry with me because Three months ago, I was that way with them. It wasn't until I was practicing for a really long period of time that all of that stopped. And now my wife is kind of like the last one. Like, you know, she yelled at me a week or two ago. But at that point, it didn't shake up my mind. In the past, a few years ago, if she would have yelled at me, I would have been yelling right back at her. And I probably would have got angry. I probably would have went outside, got on my motorbike and drove around and been really angry and, you know, went into the city and who knows what I would have ended up doing, right? But now I see it for what it is, which is true reality, which that's her anger. It's not mine. I'm not going to take her anger. I'm not going to allow it to shake up my mind and be discontent. But you've got to still experience those things coming back to you. But eventually through practicing the Eightfold Path for longer and longer and longer periods of time, you will extinguish and clean up all of that unwholesomeness that you did in the past. And you will get to the point where nothing unwholesome is coming back to you. Can I clarify that by way of an example? So say someone was just walking down the street one day and they were robbed or they were attacked. Would that necessarily mean that that person was not enlightened? I mean, likelihood is they're not, but if they weren't experiencing discontentedness in any other aspect of their life, but that occurrence still happened to them, what would that say about uh, the state of their mind? I would say that enlightenment is all based on the state of their mind, not based on specifically what's happening to them. Like, for example, like my wife yelling at me, right? This is like her yelling at me, but I didn't do anything to cause that. She's causing it herself. So even like when I'm online now, like people will that I've never met before, they will talk bad to me. But I didn't cause that. I didn't create that. And just because they're talking bad to me doesn't mean that I'm not enlightened. I'm not saying I am enlightened or I'm not enlightened. But just because they're talking bad to me doesn't mean that I'm not enlightened or if something bad happens. But like something like a robbery, for example, Max, is an enlightened being has a lot of decisions they're going to make to ensure that they're not in that situation, right? So it would be very unlikely for an enlightened being to be robbed, for people to steal from an enlightened being. I don't see that happening at all because there's lots and lots of decisions that an enlightened being is going to make and they're not going to be in a situation where they could be robbed. Highly likely they wouldn't have that much of value on them that a robber might want anyway, but it's right. possible. Right, an enlightened being is going to use wisdom, 
But let's just let's just say somebody's mind is perfectly content, perfectly peaceful, joyful. They're not experiencing any discontentedness. They're practicing all these teachings. And let's just say they do get robbed. They're going to have wisdom in that situation of how to deal with it. And their mind's not going to be discontent because of the robbery. Once the robbery is done and over with, it's done and over with. And it's on to the next thing. They might report it to the police. They might take action or what have you. But they're not going to be sad. They're not going to be angry. They're not going to be frustrated. They're not going to be trying to figure out how to get back at that person. Right. They just know like, okay, that's in the past. And let me just do whatever I need to do to take action on this now. But I don't think an enlightened being is going to ever get robbed. I really don't. Okay. Thank you, David. We do have a couple more questions. So I'd like to get your take on how to proceed with those. It's uh, coming up to around half past. So okay, take one or two more. Yeah, go ahead. It looks like people are still hanging out. Yeah, okay. So Michael asks, can you explain more about true reality? True reality is being able to see the natural laws of existence and being able to see them very clearly in that you operate through those natural laws of existence. Seeing true reality is also seeing things with direct knowledge and not allowing your perceptions or your assumptions to stand in the way of your decision-making process, right? Looking for the truth in everything that you do and not just assuming things or making decisions based on perceptions. But when I say a knowing of true reality or knowing of true reality, what I'm referring to widely is the understanding and knowing and practicing of the natural laws of existence. But someone who's doing that isn't going to make decisions based on assumption or based on perceptions. They're going to see the truth for themselves. They're going to always be looking for the truth and they're not going to make any decisions based on innuendo, hearsay, gossip, things like that. They're always going to be looking for the truth and make decisions solely on the truth. Okay, well, speaking of gossip, we have a question from IA. They ask, sir, can you please clarify how we would navigate situations in which other peers attempt to gossip with us? Thank you. Each situation is different and you've got to look at each situation. If I'm among people that I don't really know very well and they're gossiping, I'm just not going to participate, right? I may sit there. I may not participate. I may try to change the subject. I may get up and go to the bathroom and go somewhere else. You know, who knows what? There's lots of different ways to handle that, but I'm surely for myself not going to gossip because this practice isn't about trying to control other people and stopping them from gossiping. This practice is about you in your practice. By you not gossiping, you're practicing the teachings. If others around you are gossiping and your mind becomes discontent because of it, that's because you're craving people to not gossip. You've got to get to be comfortable that there are going to be situations where other people are gossiping around you, but you're choosing not to gossip. So that's one way to handle it. If it's people that I don't know very well, I'm just either going to be remain quiet, I'm either going to change the subject, or I might get up and leave. If it's people that I know really well, particularly like if it's students or something, and I'm in a teacher role, I'm going to probably, as a teacher, speak up 
and help them realize that what they're currently talking about is not wise for us to discuss. So it really depends on the situation. There's not just one permanent right answer other than the right answer is you don't gossip. That's the right answer. All the other aspects of the decision is going to be based on lots of different variables. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Oh, that was quick. That was easy. All right. Well, I will thank you guys for joining for today's class. This was very interesting to go through and kind of get to this point in our group learning program where we just finished up the last part of the content of this book. And on Wednesday is our breathing mindfulness meditation class. And that's kind of considered the last official class session for this iteration of the group learning program. But it's almost like, you know, we just move right into continuing classes where on next Sunday, I'm going to be talking about the five hindrances to enlightenment. Today, we talked a little bit about how do you know if you've attained enlightenment? Well, next Saturday, this is a topic that's not covered in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana that I wrote. We're going to be discussing the five hindrances of things that will hinder you and block you and stop you from attaining enlightenment because you need to eradicate those things. You need to be aware of them and you need to transform them so that you're not being hindered on your path to enlightenment. So that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. It's something that isn't really in the book. It's not something that I've put in our Facebook group. It's just something that I plan to talk about because I know it's important for you guys to learn. And then from there going forward, for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the eightfold path. Typically, I would talk about that in just one session, but I'm breaking it down into three individual sessions so that we can spend one class session on right view and right intention. That's the wisdom of the eightfold path. And then the next session is on the moral conduct, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the third part of that series is going to be the mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's going to be a three-part series so that we can really penetrate into this eightfold path. So we're going to first talk next Sunday about the hindrances to enlightenment. Then we're going to talk about the path really, really detailed. Then on the fifth Sunday from now, we're going to be talking about the 10 fetters, what they are, and how to eliminate them because this is how to attain enlightenment is through eliminating those 10 fetters. We're going to talk about the four stages of enlightenment and we're going to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. And then from there, the sixth Sunday from now, we're then going to start over at chapter one in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, which you can download or you can get a copy of it if you like. And we're going to start at chapter one and then it'll take us six months to go all the way back through again. So if you're just joining us for the first time or you've been around in this group learning program for a while, there's a bunch of classes that are coming up that I haven't taught before that are going to be important information for you guys. And if you're just joining, this is a really good ramp up for you. It's a really good time to come into these group learning programs because you're going to be getting some really deep content about this path to enlightenment before we start into chapter one of the book. 
And then, of course, on Wednesdays, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and Buddhist chanting. We're going to be rotating those every three weeks. And then on Saturdays, we're going to be in the Pali Canon and English program where we've got 13 of these books that we're studying, which are the words of the Buddha. And we're going to be studying these each Saturday. But you can download this and you can read it ahead of time because you're going to need to do about an hour of reading before the Saturday class. And then this book takes about 20 minutes to 30 minutes, I think, of each chapter. Some of them are a little bit longer where you can prepare for the Sunday class because I really suggest that you read prior to class. You're going to get a lot more benefit out of the class. You can read after if you'd like to. And some people read before and after. This just gives it more time to soak in. And if you'd like to use the audiobook, I've released the audiobook for free on our podcast site and our YouTube channel, where on the YouTube channel, you can actually see the book because it's a video and you can hear me speaking. On the podcast, it's just me speaking. But that's another way for you to take in the content. In fact, before these classes, I oftentimes will listen to the audiobook of what I actually wrote just to kind of refresh my memory of what it is that you guys have probably already read. So feel free to use the printed book. Feel free to use the audiobook either on YouTube or podcast. Feel free to listen to the previous podcast because this particular talk that I did, there was also one six months ago as well. So continue to learn, continue to meditate each day two or three times a day, meditating each day, building up your practice more and more and more, where you get closer and closer to about 30 minutes of meditation or more per session, and that you're slowly, gradually learning the teachings bit by bit, piece by piece, and come to these classes to learn and ask questions to get help. And where you would like some personal guidance, you can post those questions into the Facebook group, you can private message me. You can schedule a appointment where you talk to me one-on-one through Zoom, or you can ask your questions in these online classes. And this is a way for you to receive guidance to gradually build up your practice more and more and more. So until either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, have a really wonderful rest of your day. And remember, always treat everyone polite, kind, friendly and respectful because if you do this when you put that out that's what's going to come back to you and i'm sure you would enjoy people treating you politely kindly friendly and respectfully the only way for that to happen is you've got to do it first you've got to put that out into the world so that that's what comes back to you don't put that out in the world because you expect it to come back to you or you want it to come back to you but put that out into the world because it's the right thing to do. And by you doing the right thing of learning and practicing these teachings, it's going to help you. It's going to help all those people around you. And it's going to help all of humanity to make this world a better and better place. So I'll see you at the next class. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. 
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.